0: This program is brought to you by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu. Good morning. Uh,
1: Good morning and welcome to uh, the Board of Visitors meeting, which it's our 50th uh, (coughs) annual meeting actually. And we are delighted to open up this portion of the meeting to the general Stanford community for what uh, will, I'm sure, be a very interesting and important uh, discussion on the state of the legal profession. Uh, I'd like to introduce the moderator uh, of the discussion and uh, the the driving force behind it, uh, the dean of the law school, Larry Kramer. Uh, Dean Kramer brings, uh, for those of you who know him, uh, will attest to the fact he brings incredible dynamism uh, to the law school here, Uh, is willing to uh, question, Uh, uh, assumptions about the legal practice, push the limits of legal education, uh, and have the kind of forum we're about to have here, which is a no-holds-barred discussion of where we are and where we're headed. I think you'll all enjoy it. Please uh, welcome Dean Kramer.
2: Uh, thank you, and uh, good morning, everyone. So, you know, what we usually do with the Board of Visitors is we actually take the day and we present a series of the issues or problems that we're facing at the law school and then get reactions and advice and, um, <coughs> about how, to, how best to go forward. This year we decided to do something a little different and spend the day um, on the state of the profession and, and sort of what can law schools in general do about it. Um, and and wanted to start with this kind of open forum discussion. Now, j- just so you know, this is truly unplanned, <laughs> we, right? We, we have not sat down, nobody knows what we're going to do, I don't know what I'm going to do. And the idea really is to have a kind of open discussion, um, and the best way to have an open discussion then is not to plan it. Um, and, of course, at some point I hope pretty Relatively early to open it up to the audience for questions and comments, since we have an audience filled with people who could have been on this panel as well. Um, but for the moment, let me introduce the panel. It really is quite an extraordinary panel, and uh, <clears throat> uh, let me just introduce all the people on it briefly. I'm going to do actually truncated bios because if we did full bios of everybody, that would take up the whole two-hour session. Um, so let me start uh, um, with uh, Gordy Davidson. Uh, who is a graduate of this law school, class of 74, and is, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> see how unplanned? <coughs> Presently the firm chairman uh, and a partner at Fenwick and West. Uh, Gordy advises high technology companies, including networking, computer software, and electronics companies, as well as medical technology companies. His clients range from startups to Fortune 100 companies. Is there something wrong with this? It keeps coming in and out. Um, He's worked on over 40 public offerings and has also acted as lead counsel on over 100 mergers and acquisitions valued at more than $50 billion. Uh, Gordy earned a BS in electrical engineering, an MS in electrical engineering and computer systems from Stanford, uh, and is a graduate, of course, of the law school. Uh, Prior to and during law school, um, Gordy worked as a computer computer systems engineer at the Stanford Research Institute. Uh, Following law school, he clerked for Judge Ben Dunaway in the U.S. uh, Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit in San Francisco. Um, Next, uh, Kate Frusher, class of 2000, is uh, the general manager at Axiom Legal Services. Uh, Kate um, Axiom is a sort of new kind we 'll hear more about this. I hope a new kind of legal services firm made up of experienced attorneys who provide integrated legal services to corporate clients she 's also a senior fellow in combating terrorism in, in the combating terrorism center at the u s Military Academy at West Point. Um, after graduating law school, uh, Kate worked. Uh, as a Scadden Fellow uh, and founded the Family Court Education Project, and after that, uh, spent a brief period at Cravath, Swain and Moore in New York until September 11, 2001. At that point, she served as senior aide to the New York City Fire Commissioner, where she helped assess the Fire Department's response on 9-11 and established the uh, Fire Department's Terrorism Preparedness Task Force. Um, next, Jim Holzhauer is the firm chairman and a partner at Mayor Brown. Uh, He's been chairman of Mayor Brown since 2007. He also chairs the firm's policy and planning committee, which he joined in 1998. Uh, Jim served as Mayor Brown's general counsel from 1992 to 2007. His active role in firm governance includes membership in the pro bono committee and the Committee on Diversity and Inclusion. Uh, His legal work focuses on appellate matters, and he's well known for his practice before the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, He counsels clients on labor and employment matters, and represents them in both employees' benefits and general employment litigation. Um, Jim joined Mayor Brown in 1988 from the faculty of the University of Chicago Law School, um, where he actually started at the same time as me, uh, and has, and continued to teach there until 2006 when he uh, became uh, firm chairman. Um, Jim went to the University of Michigan Law School, after which he clerked for uh, the Honorable Robert Ainsworth on the uh, U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, and then for Chief Justice Warren Burger on the U.S. Supreme Court. Mark Chandler is Senior Vice President, General Counsel and Secretary of Cisco Systems Inc. He served in that role since 2001. He served as Cisco's Managing Attorney for Europe, the Middle East and Africa from 1996 to 1999. Uh, He was previously General Counsel of Stratacom Inc., which Cisco acquired in July 1996 and was Vice President, Corporate Development and General Counsel of Maxter Corporation, a Fortune 500 manufacturer of computer data storage devices from 1988 to 1994. In 1985 and 1986, he participated in the Robert Bosch Foundation Fellowship Program in Bonn and Munich, Germany. Uh, He received his B.A. from Harvard College and a J.D. from Stanford Law School in 1981. Rebecca love Corliss is executive director of the Institute for the Advancement of the American Legal System at the University of Denver. She served as a justice on the Colorado Supreme Court for 11 years, resigning in January 2006 to establish and lead the institute. While on the bench, she authored more than 200 opinions and dissents, uh, and also spearheaded significant reforms in the court system relating to juries, family law, and attorney regulation. Um, uh, She was appointed to the trial court Um, the district court in Colorado in 1987, served as chief judge of the district for three years, spent one year before joining the uh, state Supreme Court as an arbitrator and mediator for the Judicial Arbiter Group in Denver, um, and then was appointed to the Colorado Supreme Court in 1995. Um, Finally, um, uh, Jamie Ann Studley. Now, uh, Jamie Ann was a last-minute addition, and I'd like to thank her for joining us. So she's not in your programs, um, and we're grateful to her for coming on such short notice uh, and for the expertise that she can bring to the discussion. Uh, Jimmy Ann Sudley became president of Public Advocates Inc. in 2004, uh, drawn by its dual mission of advancing civil rights and strengthening community voices. She served as president of Skidmore College, Saratoga Springs, New York, and deputy and acting general counsel of the U.S. Department of Education in the Clinton administration. Earlier she was an associate dean and lecturer in law at Yale Law School, where she helped establish the loan forgiveness program for graduates in public service. Um, and she was a, an adjunct faculty at the University of California at Berkeley uh, School of Law. Um, as the first executive director of the National Association for Law Placement, or NALP, she led its race, gender, and sexual orientation equity programs. She's a member of the Bar of the District of Columbia and practiced there with Bergson, Borkland, and Mar- Margulis and Adler as a litigation associate, and with Wild Gottschall, and Mang- Manges, uh, in administrative law. She graduated from Barnard College uh, in 1972 and from Harvard Law School where she was president of the student faculty government. Okay. Um, so as you see, we've tried to put a panel here that would represent many different voices from within the profession and really get them to react to each other. So, um, Jim, I, I want to actually start with you okay. if I could. Um, so when you left, as I said, we started in teaching together uh, and uh, when you left the law school to join Mayor Brown, it was about how big? Maybe 200, 200? about
3: 300 jobs. lawyers at that point.
2: And just a tiny little office in, in Washington, I think, had just opened, right? We had
3: offices in Washington that had been there for a while, in New York. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, I originally thought I was going to join the appellate practice in Washington be, before my wife told me we were staying in Chicago.
2: <laughs> Interesting choice. Um, and now, what's, what's, what's the size of the firm now?
3: Uh, we're a little over 1,800 lawyers now. We have 1,000 lawyers in the Americas, 500 in Europe, and 300 in Asia.
2: And how many offices? Uh, 20-something, uh, at least as of today. Okay, and how do you explain that? That's a say that's unbelievable growth. So what 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 lies behind that?
3: Well, uh, a number of people uh, serve on the management committee at Mayor Brown. Uh, uh, Lou Eatman in the audience as partner in tra- former partner in charge of a Los Angeles <laughs> office was part of that. At one point we decided that uh, we needed an overall strategy for the law firm. There are lots of ways law firms can be successful. There's no one model uh, that's gonna work now or work in the future. Uh, But one successful model uh, we believe is is the global law firm that will offer clients uh, integrated legal services around the world. Uh, So we made a decision to go in that direction. Uh, At one point we were talking about um, small organic growth uh, at each, uh, each location. Uh, we found out that opening small offices in places like London and Hong Kong is a wonderful place, a wonderful way to lose a lot of money. Um, uh, so we, we decided that the alternative was to really become local in all of our jurisdictions uh, and we did that through mergers. So we had a big merger in London. Uh, we had a substantial group of people join us in, in Paris from another uh, a previous law firm, uh, same in Germany uh, and most recently in Asia.
2: So is the idea, in other words, that you have clients who need service in all of these places, or is it to have a diversified client portfolio?
3: It's both. Uh, We serve a lot of, for example, Asian clients, uh, which is our newest addition. Uh, We serve a lot of Chinese clients, for example, who are looking to do business in the United States or in Europe, Uh, a lot of American and European clients who are looking to do business in uh, in Asia. A lot of our long-established clients are in that mold, uh, but there are a lot of people who are coming to us now and saying, you know, that's an interesting model. Uh, you really do have one of the biggest law firms in Asia. Uh, we, need to, uh, we need to take advantage of that expertise.
2: And of the 1,800 or so attorneys, how many are partners about? Uh,
3: there are approximately 400 equity partners and, and a couple hundred more income partners.
2: So although just focusing, so the, the <clears throat> sort of partner to non-partner ratio is, uh, has the balance changed?
3: <laughs> the balance has changed substantially. Um, uh, in some uh, in years past, it was something close to one-to-one. Uh, now it's substantially over four-to-one. Uh, it depends a lot on the practice area. The practice area that I grew up in, the, the appellate practice, still tends to be fairly uh, partner-heavy. Uh-huh. Uh, but uh, a lot of the transactional practices and a lot of the general litigation practices are, are more levered. Uh, the Asian practice uh, is highly levered. The French practice is, is, is very, very highly levered. Uh, it, it depends on jurisdiction.
2: And, and what's the, why? What's the need for all the leverage? It's,
3: it's economic. Uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's in part a, a way that uh, uh, law firms can, uh, uh, can increase their profitability, uh, but it's also uh, a way in which we can provide good legal services at an economical way uh, to our clients. There's a lot of, lot of client pressure uh, to keep the cost of services down as much as possible.
2: Well, right, but so, and with all these associates, I mean, I assume they have to bill hours. What's the sort of ex- general expectation of billable hours?
3: It varies, again, by jurisdiction. One of the things Mayor Brown strongly believes in is, uh, unlike a few other firms, we don't, we don't say, okay, the U.S. standard applies everywhere else. Uh, so we might have uh, 1,600 uh, in, in the U.K. Uh, we might have uh, slightly less than 1,600 in Asia, uh, about 2,000 in uh, uh, in the United States and about every waking hour in Paris. <laughs>
2: um, that's interesting too. Um, it's like, what's the point of being in Paris if you? Know. Um, so they retire okay. early. I understand. Right, and then then one last question along this line, which is, so you said the first you know point was to increase profitability. I mean, that why would that have changed? That is, say, presumably that would have always been a question or an issue, and so why suddenly, you know let's shift from a one-to-one ratio to a four-to-one ratio because that will increase profitability. because there's a huge change in the culture of the firm. You've increased the hours, associates work, and so on.
3: So why? Well, actually, some of our hours haven't changed that much. I remember when I joined the firm as an associate in the appellate practice, uh, my hours were not... Uh, well,
2: the appellate practice was always a little different.
3: It was a little <laughs> intense, but, uh, you know, my hours have not changed substantially. It's, it's changed substantially now. I mean, I work harder than any associate in the law firm, uh, but... Uh, Hours have always been been pretty intense. Quite frankly, uh, we can blame this all on the American lawyer, uh, but the profitability of law firms has become something that's much more publicized, much more widely known. Uh, And and quite frankly, uh, 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 Alvin Katz was telling me earlier that his expectation when he graduated from Stanford Law School is he would join a law firm, become a partner, and spend his career there. Uh, Nowadays, that's not true. We have lots of people who are... Uh, constantly being barraged with headhunter calls saying you can make 10% more there, 30% more there. Uh, we've recently had some people who were told that they can make 100% more somewhere else. Uh, there, there's always a moving premium involved in that, but uh, people look very hard at what the profitability of law firms are and, and whether they can make more money by going elsewhere. And At a certain point, uh, if you're going to be in the large law firm game, uh, you, have to, uh, you have to go with the market. Okay, and then one last question. Actually, no, you is, said the last one. I know, doing. I know, but it prompted
2: one last thing, which is um, just say a little bit, because I want to come back to this later with everybody else about. So as you, you know, as you increase the size of your associate pool, how do you handle the training?
3: Well, I think that that's a very, very good question. It's a question that we are uh, we have struggled with uh, over time. I, I think right now we're hearing from a lot of clients that. Uh, particularly as the, the the salaries of first and second year associates get higher, they're not particularly interested in paying uh, high rates for untrained lawyers. Uh, so for us uh, to uh, to really get lawyers up to speed quickly, we have to do a lot of the training in house. Uh, we uh, we've done a lot of that over the years in London. Uh, we have a, a knowledge management function. We have uh, uh, lawyers whose full time job is is training. Uh, we have uh, something we call the corporate university, where, where corporate lawyers are going uh, to train. All of our practice groups uh, do a lot of training of, of, of young lawyers. Uh, and I think that uh, that's necessary. The, the, the practice of law has changed dramatically. Uh, what people do this year is not what, what they're going to be doing five years from now. Uh, and, and training on the job has become an essential part of, of our business.
2: Uh-huh. All right. As I said, I want to come back to those. For, for a minute, let me turn to you, Gordy, because obviously Fenwick and West is a somewhat different model of a firm, so and I think you have a slightly different explanation for what's driving this. So one way to put the question would be why hasn't Fenwick and West gone the route of Mayor Brown, which 20 years ago looked very much like Fenwick does today, or um, how do you think about these set of issues differently when you think about building and maintaining your firm and training your associates and all of that?
4: Well, we, we face many of the same dynamics Jim described, but We've always been focused on serving high technology and life science companies, so it's, it's, it's been kind of an industry focus. Not that we won't help other companies. We do uh, do lots of work for Diamond Nuts, Virgin America Airlines, uh, Barclays Global Investors. So they're, they're certainly non-technology clients. They're very important clients to us. Uh, but we think we have a competitive advantage because we started early with intellectual property capabilities here in Silicon Valley, and we grew up with Silicon Valley with companies like Apple and Oracle and Cisco and so forth. So We established a brand there and it it was uh, sort of self-fulfilling, but you you need a, we think that you, to be, there are two models to be successful. One is to be very large and and to try to be all things in all places to all clients. And the other is to be very focused and to be, you know, really among the best uh, at certain things and define some things as outside the universe of what we'll tackle. but the world's flat. I mean, there's no no question about it. Even in our practice, all of our clients deal with India, China, and the rest of the world. So on any given day, you know, I, I realized one day last year that we had eight partners in India on that day and six partners in China on that day. And we only had – then we only had 85 partners, so it was quite a, quite a large percentage <laughs> of the firm uh, in those countries. But we don't have offices because we learned uh, from the mistakes of others, if a five-person office is a good way to lose a lot of money and, and uh, particularly in these emerging countries. So we try to do it virtually by having alliances with firms that have already spent the money on that infrastructure. So we have alliances with this, uh, the second largest firm in China, for example, and uh, Allen & Overy in London, which is in 22 countries, and, and, and 160 other firms that we do uh, work with on a spot basis. Uh, but we like the fact that we all know each other. We have 275 lawyers today. Uh, and uh, I think with the exception of a couple of new hires, I know all of them. And uh, and, and we um, are able to get all 90 partners in a one room. And if we have mm-hmm. a strategic issue to deal with, we can, we can all talk it out. Everybody you know, not only knows it, each other, but knows you know, our, our families and, and the names of our kids and that sort of thing. Uh, but clearly, uh, law firms have to grow, and when I joined the firm, I was actually still in law school when I started working for the firm. It was six lawyers They had just come from Cleary Gottlieb to put a stake in the ground in Silicon Valley, Uh, and um, they greatly overestimated uh, the the splash they would make as New York lawyers here. really, Silicon Valley yawned at the time, but uh, Uh uh, gradually uh, things got very busy, and then, you know, know, just the, the, the growth of Silicon Valley propelled our growth. But we face the same training issues and, and uh, the American lawyer for many years we wouldn't even respond to the American lawyer because most law firms, believe it or not, Larry, fib about their profits per partner. Uh, so uh, you know, law to, schools never to, do that when attract, we reply to
2: US news. Mm-hmm.
4: <laughs> to, to attract uh, uh, you know lateral partners on the on the spot market. But uh, uh, you know that's that's become uh, you know a, a an issue in terms of you know what's sort of Driving some of the focus on profitability, but uh, well, uh, there, there are many things to say here. I mean, uh, well, one no question. Result. I mean, if
2: I heard it right at the beginning, is the suggestion that because I've noticed this in New York and Chicago as well, that the the only place left for the mid sized firm is a niche market place, right? And it's, it's like in New York, I've noticed the mid sized firms there's only one or two left. There's yeah, it's big it's
4: hard, firms and tiny little boutiques. It's hard to say. I mean. You're, for the, the, the law firm consultants, the, the pundits have been predicting the demise of the mid-sized firm ever since we've been a mid-sized firm. And that mm-hmm. was when we were 40 lawyers, when we were 80 lawyers, when we were 120, 160, 200. They're still a mid-sized firm. Uh, and now, just it's, it's in the last year, they flipped and they said, well, they're actually, those are the firms that are doing well right now because they are focused and they're in, in, in important areas that, that are in demand. And, you know, we try to go where the client demand is. Uh, not, uh, not necessarily where our intellectual interests, uh, you know, had, had took us in the beginning. Yeah, I think a lot of law, um, ca- your law career develops serendipitously. I mean, just some interesting client lands on your desk or an inter- interesting issue does and you kind of just ride it for for a
3: career. <laughs> yeah. But I think it's clearly correct, uh, Gordy, that uh, the mid-sized firms, uh, I mean, these days you talk about boutique firms up to 500 lawyers, <laughs> the mid-sized firms that succeed are the ones like yours that have focused and and, and really uh, have identified who they are, what they're going to do, uh, who they're going to serve. Uh, I, I think the uh, the mid-sized uh, firms that try to do everything for everybody are are are, are falling more by the wayside than the, than the specialist uh, firms.
2: Now, of course, some of the reason for that, I think, is that the large firms with which those kinds of firms are competing are paying, you know let's say, very high salaries, right? Starting associates at 160. I think it's going up with bonuses of, you know, anywhere from 50 to $200,000 and so on. So it's going to be hard to compete to get lawyers under those circumstances, yes?
4: Yeah, but, you know, it's not the large firms that started this war. It's the, it's the, it's the uh, boutique firms that started the war. In 1999, it was right. the Gunderson firm here in Menlo Park, uh, an all-corporate, all-startup, all-technology all startup company. Uh-huh. All they needed to, was to hire five people that year. So they decided to distinguish themselves in the, law for, in the law school recruiting OCI process by raising salaries 50% in 1999. And they thought it's such a big number, no one would follow suit. And of course, all the large firms felt they had to, and then it, it was a snowball. Uh, it was nuts. And right. uh, you know, it just happened yeah. again. Um, a year and a half ago when uh, th- that salary, which was $135,000 uh, in 1999, was stuck until 2006, uh-huh. end, of, end of 2006, uh, maybe end of, 2000, uh, end of 2006, when it went up to 145, And there was some question about whether people would match. And then a few months later, people jumped to 160. But those were started by uh, a couple of patent uh, uh, boutiques in Southern California. That that, that wave of increases, so it isn't actually the large law firms, it's the small law firms who need just a few good lawyers in a niche area trying to distinguish themselves. And then the egos of the managers of the larger firms who felt they had to to match. But then you get, I mean, uh, Jim put it much more mildly than the way I received it from my clients. I got letters saying, don't you dare raise salaries. If you match salaries, do not under any circumstances raise rates. And oh, by the way, do not put any first, second, or third year associates on any of our projects, end (laughs) of of story. So, you know, that really sends you a message. And as a result, and and we saw this, of course, in in the, when the bubble burst in 2001, when we had all these lawyers that we'd hired to meet the demand in 1999, when we were all scrambling to recruit lawyers, you lose a generation of lawyers this way. There's a whole generation of lawyers who are now seventh year lawyers uh, who came out of law school in 2001 who don't know anything. And they're... But you
2: know, what do you have them doing in those first three years if, uh, <laughs> if clients won't pay for them to do work? Well, they,
4: they, they do some, you know, form building and, and, and we do some educational things. We try to put them to work as best we can and, and then right, right off the time. The, the education is on us. is much different from when we all started practicing where, You'd get a letter from a client saying, we have a question, could you research it for us? Yes, we'll go research it. We'll send you a memo in three weeks, and we'll revise it four <laughs> times. They'll think about it for two more weeks. They'll send uh-huh. you comments. And it, so you, you, know, you, you train your lawyers based on the research of these questions. Now my typical call is 7.30 in the morning from Mark saying, I need an answer now. I'm going into a meeting. Um, <laughs> don't, don't, don't research it. Uh, just, just give me your gut feeling. Uh, you know what is it? Or actually, it's not. It's, it's more often from uh, Mark's deputy. But uh, it's uh, uh, there's no opportunity to even think about it, let alone research, let alone, you know, in, engage an associate in the, in, in the learning process, you know, it just happens. But all right, well, what, Mark, what, what, what this all seeing... sounds
2: pretty unreasonable on, on your part
4: and yeah. on <laughs> the part of clients. Um, yeah, just let me, let me say one more thing. We are now seeing a barrage of lateral associate resumes who are 2001, 2002 graduates who've been in various other places, were laid off from their first job, went a different path to, to have a job, and now want to kind of come back to this kind of practice. And we sit down with them and we say, you know, just describe your experience over the last six, seven years. And they do, and we say, you know what, we think you're a second-year lawyer. Do you agree? And they say yes. Yep. And we say, we'll bring you back in, into this, you know, we'll bring you into our practice, but we'll we'll pay you and treat you as a second-year lawyer, and they do it.
2: Does that Which mean once they're a second-year well. lawyer, so they can't work lost, on anything anymore? It's a lost
4: generation. So uh, seriously, Mark, I mean, uh,
2: you know, it's, doesn't that sound somewhat unreasonable, both in, in terms of the firm's ability to to employ and train the people who you're going to need to be giving your judgments 15, 20 years from now and in terms of their ability to deliver, you know, high-quality legal services.
5: Well, there there are a couple of things Gordy said that I want to comment on to start (laughs) off with. This
4: is payback, Mark. I was sitting in the audience when you gave your speech a year and a half ago.
5: Someone asked me recently how you reacted to the speech, and I had to tell the truth that you'd actually read it in advance and commented on it.
6: Uh, Mm -hmm.
5: The first is uh, when Gordy said that the growth of Silicon Valley propelled the growth of the firm, I think he is substantially uh, understating in his usually modest way the uh, extraordinary talent and skill that Gordy and his partners bring to the work they do, and I think that 's what propelled the growth of your firm rather than just generic growth in the area. Second, when Gordy says, "I call him at seven thirty in the morning, actually when Brobeck had been cisco 's principal outside counsel, and when Brobeck collapsed and we needed to uh, re- replace Brobeck uh, <coughs> serendipitously, I was running in my neighborhood in Palo Alto one morning and happened to see Gordy. We ended up running together for 25 minutes and that was the beginning of this relationship by which Gordy and his firm now do all of our corporate and securities and MA work. And that was at about 7.30 in the morning. And I told that story to someone who said, Do you know how many mornings he had to wait outside? (laughs) (laughs) To your question, Larry, uh, 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 as a client, the world I live in, and I think my peers to a greater and greater extent, is I manage the way every other function in a company is managed. I need to have a budget, which means I need predictability. If I'm off in one quarter or the next, hurts me, it hurts my management, it hurts the company, I need predictability and I need also to be able to show productivity improvements and that means that really every year the percentage of Cisco's revenue that is spent on legal services should go down. I need to show scalability as our company grows. I need to show some leverage in the way I build legal services uh, and provide it inside the company and that means taking advantage of whatever tools are available to do that uh, and I think it means, as a client, I have to take a very differentiated view of the type of services that I buy and how they get delivered. And there's no better illustration than that than the relationships that I have with Fenwick and West, with Mayor Brown, and with Axiom. And I, if you don't mind me using that for a second just as an example. Uh, as I said, Gordy provides all of our corporate and securities and MA work. Now, we acquire about 10 companies a year. Uh, we can pretty much count on the fact that we're gonna have six board meetings. Uh, three ten 10Qs and one ten k every year. It just seems to work that way. <laughs> um, as a result, we've been able to work with Gordy to structure a fixed fee arrangement with flexibility where things turn out differently than we expected. It's not supposed to look at this and find a way for me to save money and him to lose money. Uh, but a fixed fee that helps align the interest and make sure the work gets done very, very leanly and efficiently. And I asked, Gordy actually to come back to me and give me a service level agreement as the client where he tells me how to be a better client. You know, I can reduce that fixed fee by 5% next year if you start doing this, this, and this differently. And that's fine with me because then I share the savings and he ends up more profitable and I end up with, with lower costs relative to the size of the company. So that's one model that's worked very well where there's a volume of work where you can do a pretty good job of estimating, but it required some flexibility on... Bordy's part, some flexibility on my part. And there are a lot of companies that aren't ready to do that necessarily because they kind of like the billable hour. Maybe they came out of the law firm world. With Mayor Brown, I was just saying to Jim how grateful I was for the extraordinary help we got on a, a US Supreme Court case where one of our subsidiaries was a respondent this year. And we hired a team at Mayor Brown to do the work. And it was incredibly complex. First, we needed someone who really understood that body of law had argued before the Supreme Court in that space a dozen times, knew exactly where each of the justices was gonna be coming from. We needed a team in Washington that knew how to work with government agencies, knew how to work with the Solicitor General's office. Uh, We needed people who had expertise in the press and how the case was gonna be positioned uh, in public media. And really, it was an extraordinary job. It was a one-off. And we certainly did have a couple of finalists and we took bids from them and we used that to negotiate a price for that, Uh, but at the same time, it was clear that I needed a very, very special kind of expertise that could and did command top dollar, and I never regretted a bit of it. Uh, Finally, with Axiom, uh, Kate and her team have done a remarkable job of recruiting top-notch people who didn't want to work in places like Mayor Brown and Fenwick for whatever reason in their lives that it wasn't working at that time and make them available to us on a very fixed, regular basis where we've been able to integrate folks into our team and get very, very efficient assistance. And I'll close with one example from one other uh, law firm that's very directly relevant to this question, of the salaries. Uh, uh, Morgan Lewis does all of our commercial litigation on a fixed fee basis. We hire them two years at a time. Whatever comes in, they do it. If extra cases come in, that's extra cost for them, but they understand the risk there. If very few, stuff, very few things come in, they get to collect the money whether they work or not. So uh, everyone's aligned to try to reduce the amount of litigation that we have at Cisco. Well, they came to us recently and said, uh, you know, we have a lot of routine work that's part of this subpoenas and so forth, uh, where uh, we have all these associates that we pay $160,000 a year and it doesn't make sense to use them on this work. Would you mind if we started using contract attorneys to do some of that work? We'll still be responsible for the quality. I don't know if you're supplying people to Morgan Lewis to work on Cisco. Uh, But it was was a great idea as as far as I was concerned. I think that's what will happen over time is that if if there isn't demand for people making $160,000 a year and needing to bill concomitantly to do work that doesn't add value, Eventually, as clients start to think about ways to restructure their relationships, the firms are going to find other ways to do the work. Now, I assume that Morgan Lewis has found someone else to uh, throw their $160,000 a year first years at, but it isn't me.
2: Yeah, so I... (laughs) This is all, like, completely contradictory, right? So, for instance, Mayor Brown could not if, – if every client dealt with the firms the way you did, none of the firms would survive. No, I pay,
5: I pay top dollar for that, for that right, work. Right, for the I occasional he, one-off piece, but if every client
2: cheeks. went to the Mayor Brown's with an occasional one-off piece, a firm of that size with that number of associates would not be able to produce enough to sustain itself. And same thing, I, with, for I assume, for Fenwick – the problem, of course, if it 's very efficient for Cisco is again puts pressure on you so you either have trouble hiring the best lawyers or maintaining them or paying now before we plunge back into more of that, I want because you referred to Kate and to axiom and Kate tell you know i don 't know how many people know exactly what Axiom does and how it works, and let 's put that one out on the table as well and talk
0: about that a little bit sure first it 's an amazing honor to be on this panel, so thanks for having me uh, it, it doesn 't seem like all that long ago that I was here at the law school. Uh, day to day. and it wasn't so all that long ago. It, it wasn't that long ago. Um, and I was graduated on the cusp of the lost lawyer period that, uh-huh. that Gordy talked about. Um, and it was really that experience um, that spawned Axiom. One of our co founders, Mark Harris, was at Davis Polk in the late 90s. He was working the typical life of very, very long hours, nights, weekends, and one day was asked to pull together a bill for a client. And he found that he had his whole year's salary had been billed out in one month and the rest of it was all leverage. So he really understood the amount of leverage that was in the, the model given just the numbers that he saw. Um, he joined forces with a, a dear friend of mine who was at the GSB here um, and they took a step back and looked at the profession and said, you know, first of all, um, in an environment where everybody's being pushed to become more efficient Why aren't law firms being pushed to become more efficient? And particularly Alec, as the non-lawyer in that said, and why is everyone unhappy except perhaps some of the partners? It seems like every lawyer I know is unhappy and it seems like most clients I know are unhappy. So there's something wrong with this. So if two parties to an exchange are unhappy, something has to change. Um, So they stepped back and put together the pieces in a different way and came up with a a model, kind of a futuristic take on the law firm, which is about um, really creating a new model of law firm that empowers clients and attorneys um, by changing the way they work together. And by empowerment, we really mean control. On the client side, traditionally, clients like Mark had two options. You can go outside um, and there is a, a real value to the flexibility, the turning on and turning off of outside counsel, but it's not integrated with the business and increasingly, particularly for transactional and regulatory work, it's really valuable to be close to the business. Um, And it's really cost inefficient as um, Mark had experienced. The other alternative is to hire inside and then you get uh, something that's more cost efficient, clearly close to the business, but it's inflexible. I was meeting last week with the COO of a law department of one of the big investment banks. And she said, you know, our business people are always saying, well, why can't you just scale up and scale down the law department with our business? And she's like, you can't do that with people. You can't just hire, you know, quarterly um, and, and, and move people out. Um, But with Axiom, you can. So with Axiom, we have the value of in-house. Our attorneys are integrated. They work on engagements inside the law firm. Um, It's cost effective. What we've tried to do is kind of put a law firm in a wind tunnel, taking away all of the waste. We don't have the infrastructure. We don't have the partners. So we're about two thirds the costs to a half the cost of a traditional law firm. Um, And uh, It's flexible, you can turn us on and turn us off. The way we price gives visibility into pricing, so uh, we don't have the perverse incentives of the billable hour, and instead you buy a secondment, a five-day secondment, four-day, down to one, and you can scale it up and scale it back, given your needs. Um, On the attorney side, we we only um, hire highly credentialed, trained attorneys, we're not the place to go to train, we only take people who have or more years. It's more generally like 7 to 12 to 15, and now we're seeing more and more partner-level folks. Um, And they come to us. So, by the way, we don't work with law firms, so we wouldn't have have done the Morgan Lewis uh, uh, thing, mainly because we're taking those same $160-a-year associates and up, but just giving them more control, more self-direction over how they manage their career. So they get to decide what they work on, um, how much they work, who they work with, which is something that you completely lose in the traditional model. That's the the summary of Axiom. So just
2: just very quickly, just so you know, the way I, I got to know Kate was I had not heard anything about Axiom, and I was at a conference in Florida, and I got a call from a reporter from the Wall Street Journal who described Axiom to me, although not like that, and basically described it in terms of made it sound like a temp service, and then said, you know, do you think students from a place like Stanford Law School should go there? And, not having yet learned the lesson that you should never tell a reporter anything unless you actually know what you're talking about, (laughs) never just use their description. I said, well, you know, it sounds like a fine thing, but no, I would think somebody who wants to go to Stanford would be more ambitious than that or something like that. (laughs) The next day, I got a call from Mark and from several other people who've worked with Axiom basically saying, you're a moron. Uh You don't know what you're talking about. And among other things, you should recognize that you know two of the three principals in this place are your alums.
0: (laughs) So... (laughs)
2: So I contacted Kate. I learned actually a lot more about it. It is an interesting alternative, although, again, as you've just described it then, you guys are at the end of the day in some sense parasitical off of the law firms, right? Somebody's got to do this basic training. And and so we're back to what really seems to me a core difficult problem, which is somebody's got to do the basic training. Somebody's got to pay for it. So we've got nobody wants to pay for it. Um, And and so how is that supposed to – so have you guys toyed with the idea, for instance, of building in the ability to hire people out of law school and train them somehow in your service, or is that not possible?
0: We haven't, just because it really doesn't work for our model. Though one of the the ways that we get wisdom, you know, enough to to speak, you know, in a place like this is that we're in the middle of the marketplace all the time, talking to people um, who are general counsels, deputy general, general counsels, talking to attorneys coming out of big firms. And one of the things that I'm beginning to see with really large corporations, one of the biggest banks, commercial and investment banks, was just telling me that they are looking to hire people right out of law school to have them almost seconded to law firms, if you will, for the first few years so that their training is tailored to the needs that they'll generally be addressing in that company. So instead of just you know, being on a, a wide range of matters, doing low level work, they'll come out, they'll be placed at the firm, they'll begin to learn the business and you know, the activities that they do will be much more tailored than the existing model allows for. And that, that, that may be where the future is going for very large companies.
2: And one other quick question for you guys. I mean, you must need an incredibly, if, if the lawyers are gonna have the freedom to choose when they work, with whom they work, on what matters they work, you must have to have a really big network of lawyers because when a client comes, what if you don't ha- – you have to have people who will work for them at that time, right? We're
0: actually very selective. We take – at this point we're, – we're the only one of our kind. We're very fortunate um, in that. And we take about one in 60 people who apply to us. And we're very aware of what the market demands. So we know what kind of work we're good for and what kind of work we're not good for. We are not good for bet the company type. Um, litigations, we are not good for bet the company type deals, novel areas of law, obviously, to go to these types of firms for that work makes a lot of sense. Um, We are good for a lot of the more, uh, the work that is part of the business of practicing law, Uh, the, the part, the areas of law, that are just deeply sunk into doing business these days. Most types of transactions, small M&As, small JVs, tons of areas in financial services. We work with all of the big investment banks. And we only take people into the firm who have skill sets that we see in high demand. Um, you know, we, one of the things about our model is that we don't pay people when they are not engaged. So we have to be confident that we can regularly engage them or it's not fair to the attorney and it's not good for our brand to have people waiting on the beach. Um, if they, if we could say on Monday you're gonna do this and then you know next month you're gonna do that, it would be much more like the traditional law firm experience. So you have the risk of some beach time, but hopefully we're selecting the right way so there isn't a lot of beach time. And what we talk to people about is, you know, there's risk and there's risk. We're paying a premium on what people would make in-house for that risk, but there's also the risk of not having a satisfying career, the risk of not being able to have time with your family and your other interests, the risk of, you know, not being happy. And a lot of our attorneys have to be people who have decided that it's not worth the law firm risk and that the risk on our side um, is worth taking.
2: Mark, did you want
5: to? Yeah, I I think there's there's an answer to the conundrum that, that you posed, and that is that in every industry, the cost model and the value model have to match. And in a world where information moves relatively freely and buyers can get information about costs and can drive competition, people are going to find ways to eliminate internal subsidization and uh, get to low-cost solutions. And that's what's going on. So I think the boutiques will do well who provide specialized services, and that's the answer to your question about our relationship with Mayor Brown. This goes all the way, the the best example I can think of what's going on is a site called LegalOnRamp, LegalOnRamp.com, I urge people to go check it out where we now have several hundred law firms and and close to a thousand, if not more, individual lawyers in companies and elsewhere using it as a networking site to find information where firms are putting up all of their client briefs and starting to put up uh, more uh, purpose-specific information that people can then access through frequently asked questions. I recently got a request from another company to provide a copy of an RFP we'd used to find a a law firm to do work in the global corporate secretarial area, um, and as people do that, they will find lower cost ways to do it. I just did my, da- my daughter, is a school teacher in New York City, we, she was doing her taxes for the first time. She had lived half a year in California, half in New York. It was kind of complex. I bought TurboTax. I had to pay an extra $35 to download a second state because we needed New York as well as California. We decided to meet somewhere in the middle, so we went to Vail for a few days to work on taxes. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, uh, for $80, we got a fairly complex problem done using web access through links that were in the program to get answers to questions that I didn't have a clue about. I mean, how many tenths of an hour of someone's time at Mayor Brown is it that I pay to to Intuit to get a huge amount of legal information to, to solve that problem? And I think as you start to differentiate different types of legal services, you're going to see clients finding ways to drive to get a cost model that matches the value model. And there may be some parts of this profession where it does not make economic sense to be paying people $160,000 a year to train them the first year out of law school. And this is a problem that the firms have if they're perpetually on a basis of having to you know, bill person out, bill a year's salary in a month to drive leverage for partner profitability. I can't fix that problem, but I'm sure not going to subsidize it with the money of my shareholders.
2: Right. Well, so and that is so because something gets squeezed, right? So, Jimmy, and let me come to you for two, two, two forms of expertise. So, I'm curious to get your reaction based on the work you did with NAP to all this conversation about salaries and and the way that works, and and then also, you know. I'll put it the way, the most provocative way for you. So where does public interest fit here? Is, is that a separate okay. community or, or how does it fit into this model in terms of <clears throat> bringing people in, training them,
7: getting them integrated into the profession and, and so on? Uh, great questions, thank you. Um, we can certainly blame it on Steve Brill. Um, I moderated a program like this about the changing nature of the legal profession at now national meetings um, starting about 20 years ago and Steve Brill in person was the whipping boy. (laughs) Um, But even then, we knew that the profession could have ignored what he was doing. It did not have to buy partner profitability uh, charts. It could have said, that's interesting, but not relevant to what we're doing. Uh, The New York Times at that point, the, the lead salary move I remember was Cravath going up because they had lost a few people to investment banking firms and were frantic. Um, insulted, horrified, appalled. And still, they only needed a few people. Uh, my favorite conversation out of that stage of the conversation was with a sports reporter, Murray Schumacher for the New York Times, who wrote about baseball. And we tracked together over the phone the increase in salaries of baseball players and lawyers, and the pattern was about the same. And the, um, we speculated about how that would affect the teams and the sense of what baseball was about. Um, You know, I know law, you know law uh, better than I know baseball, Um, but I think it hasn't been pretty. in
5: both cases. It has not been. Exactly right. It
7: has not been pretty in either case. Um, I could choose to play the frustrated, last added, naive public interest representative um, on this panel, Um, but then my two board members who are sitting out here would be disappointed in me, and um, Larry would never invite me to teach here. So um, (laughs) let me choose another perspective, um, which is... Um, Observer, just for the moment, Um, I have heard, we have all heard the words profitability, game, market, American lawyer, success, India, China, but as of, it wasn't until 9.45 that somebody said the word unhappy, Um, took a little longer to get to happy, Um, and the phrases justice, satisfaction, and professional responsibility, unless I zoned out for a moment, um, have not yet been raised, um, and yet here at Stanford um, I hope and imagine that they're raised a great deal during the course of people's education and when they return as alumni. So what's the disconnect that's happening here and what does that have to do with your second question? Um, so I charted as I listened a couple of similarities and a couple of differences among our um, Uh, aspects of the profession and the experiences that we have leading organizations of different kinds um, providing legal services. Uh, The first one I note is that my organization, Public Advocates in San Francisco, chooses what we work on. We choose our priorities, we choose our projects, and our test is, will this work make a difference for opportunities and rights and social justice for low-income people? That's a completely different driver. Um, Using Mark's phrase about cost-value model, it doesn't work very well. Um, It doesn't fit. There are so many externalities and so many intangibles, um, and the market is, shall we say, imperfect for public interest law. So that takes me to the second observation, um, a tremendous difference. Some of you, uh, some of your organizations, struggle to recruit top talent at $160,000 plus every year, whereas one of my most powerful, frustrating, and compelling dilemmas with my colleagues is that when I can afford to hire a new fellow at $46,000 a year living in San Francisco, California, I choose among and reject Stanford Law graduates and top graduates of every law school in the country, circuit court clerks, and Rhodes Scholars. Um, Sometimes they come in a package, Stanford Rhodes Scholars even, whom I cannot find room for because The work that we do, while honored by many um, uh, uh, credible members of our profession, just has not found a model to transfer some of those resources or enough of those resources to the kind of work that we do. Um, This isn't the time for an ad for the importance of what we do. I'll send you all. uh, You can look on our website, um, or Miguel and Fred can tell you um, where it fits in the world and why they spend time on it. But there are some similarities, and I'll just tell you briefly what they are because you may want to come back to them, um, Larry. We do have some very shared issues. Uh, The first of them is training. How do we take people who have completed the top law schools in the country and make them successful and satisfied advocates for whatever the purpose and cause that um, they are working on? Um, Larry Marshall and Rebecca and I participated in a conference um, here that Stanford and the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching sponsored and um, thinking about educating lawyers and what we do well and what we don't do so well in law school and what other professions do better. Um, One observation of that work on educating lawyers is that other professions do better at inculcating a sense of professional responsibility. Uh, I was also fascinated and have repeated many times a comment that a, a colleague of ours made that there are two things that law schools don't teach very well. They don't teach the importance of facts. They don't teach the importance of clients, and that's critical to Mm -hmm. everything that all of us do. It was a pretty terse statement of of the challenge. Um, So the notion of what it means to be a lawyer and how you become a lawyer is something that I think all of us um, uh, work with, especially relating to new lawyers. And finally, there are generational factors that might be of interest. The newest lawyers expect more clarity about what they're gonna do. Um, They um, ask for responsibility, leadership, and independence faster than my generation did, I know that for sure. And they have a different expectation about balance uh, as professionals. So there's a lot to to talk about in
2: that. Well, I wanna pick up on one point for just one of the early points just just for the moment, because you said it to be, and it's an interesting thing, you said at the beginning of your comments that the profession could have decided. And of course, one of the problems is the profession can't decide anything. So I come back to something Jim talked about earlier, which is the sort of new market for lateral hiring, right? So you, know, you have this cycle, right? Which is somebody's gonna come in and offer more money and somebody's gonna take that. And now suddenly you have a problem with the when I when I graduated from law school, I actually started as a paralegal at, at Dewey ba- Dewey Valentine, and it was a wonderful firm. It really was. I mean, it was a community. Most of the people had been there for their whole careers and wanted mm-hmm. to be, and uh, they and they worked hard, but not insanely so, and helped each other. And, and that disappears as as this happens. And it I do think this relates down to the law student level because one of the the be my only affirmative observation. This is really from the law school side. I actually do not believe that law students go to the firms that offer a lot of money for the money. It's not really the money at the end of the day. It's, it is something, and Kate Manley, is Kate here? She was at the dinner last night and she shared with me something that you guys, Gordy, have done at uh, Fenwick where there's this sort of generational, they talk to lawyers in different generations and what are the different sort of needs, expectations, sensibilities about the profession and they're pretty striking differences. And one of the striking things about the younger kids today that, that we feel all the time is that, you know, they've been building their resumes since they were, you know, three years old and, and <laughs> the, the sort of the difficulty of not going for the next gold star. So the reason that the firms is the correlation that gets created between who pays the most money and what has the most prestige within the profession becomes sort of the challenge. But I think if the firms that were, if, if we could think of a way to begin to redefine prestige, we might think of a way to begin to create more options for at least students to make a choice. Particularly, I don't actually blame them for this because some of it is then our and your failure to really convey to them what the differences are in making these different choices. So if, you, if you're really uncertain and a little risk averse, then it makes sense to go for what has been this kind of choice that has worked for you your whole life up till now. And then we see later in, in the profession, when they get a little older, they begin to think about moving into public service or taking an Axiom kind of job, going in house, making all the different kinds of choices that, that lawyers make. Um,
4: but Larry, I've seen this first. My son's a law student, a second year law student at a different law school. And I sat down with him last year at the time of the the, the, uh, salary, the nationwide salary increased to $160,000. And Andrew, let me explain this to you. Law students could come to our firm at, and stay at a <coughs> lower salary and actually get a better experience because we'd actually, clients would allow them to work on their projects as first year and second years they'd get more responsibility earlier. Can we sell this in the on-campus interviewing process? And he said, no chance, dad. The, the students won't even come to interview you if you're
3: not at 160 because of the perceived mm-hmm. prestige. Right, right. And I think, I think what we, we said about the, the American lawyer, I, I think it certainly is the case that the legal profession could have ignored uh, the, the, the American lawyer, could have ignored the profitability uh, figures. But once uh, some parts of it uh, decided not to ignore it, uh, people had to go along. Uh, if they wanted to be in the same market, uh, once, once people are reacting as affirmatively as they have to the prices that are available yes. in the market, it becomes hard to, to, to not compete. Uh, lots of places compete on different bases. Certainly, uh, the prestige of working in an institution like yours and, and the personal gratification yep. makes up for a very, very large uh, uh, salary difference. There's, there's no doubt about that. and I think. Uh, uh, you're right, Larry, that I, I think um, I probably would have taken a little less money to be at the, the Mayor Brown Supreme Court practice than, than working at another big firm that would pay me a little bit more and not give me the same, uh, same gratification. But uh, uh, I, I agree completely with Courtney Sun. Uh, I don't think we can uh, uh, pay less and still attract the same people if we're providing the, the similar kinds of experiences.
0: But just to comment on that, I think there's a, there's a strange thing that happens second year in law school. It's the most herd-like mentality you'll <laughs> ever see. And I don't know what's behind that. It's Absolutely. something perhaps you, you all can discuss. But I think that there are other trends that are going to drive some changes there. One is just that the traditional law firm model really does depend on one person in a family unit being kind of the person in the workplace and one person being on the domestic front. That was the traditional model, and that doesn't work for this generation, and it's mm-hmm. not going to. So when people try to find balance that allows them to share those responsibilities, particularly women, but also men, the model isn't working. And I think that really is one of the main reasons you're seeing, certainly for mid-level associates, a lot of you know, wanting change. And of course they want to go into something that allows for the prestige and the growth and the income because you need to support a family, um, but that's an important uh, trend. I think the other trend is that generations coming out now are not just satisfied putting money in their pockets. They want more. So that, you know, that may not have been the case 20 or 30 years ago. I don't know. I wasn't in the workforce, but you're certainly seeing it now. There's less aversion to risk, less aversion to change. Nobody expects that they're going to be in the apprenticeship model and and live their lives that way. Um, And so that has to be factored into all of this.
3: Yes. Two thoughts on that. One, I think the the law firm that uh, cracks uh, the lifestyle problem is going to be the most successful law firm of the next 10 years and the world, all uh, struggling for issues about One thing that w- you, you've talked a bit about training, Larry, uh, one of the things that we're dealing with and uh, uh, you know, one of the things that when I think about it, you know, one of the problems that, that Kate presents for us is we, uh, we bring on people uh, at very high income. Uh, they don't have the same expectation that they're going to be there for, for the long term. We do our best to train them. Uh, and after two or three years or four years, they decide, well, that was good training. I don't like the lifestyle, I'm gonna leave. It's a very, very expensive model. Uh, and and uh, we have to provide uh, either on the lifestyle side and the economic side, uh, more incentives to get people to stay uh, because uh, part of that's not working now.
8: Mm-hmm.
3: One thing I wanna say about training, and uh, uh, I don't think law schools uh, should move in the direction of on-the-job training. Uh, certainly, I don't think the Stanford's of this world should move in that direction. I think uh, training uh, the uh, uh, the best and, and, and the brightest students to uh, to be the best and the brightest lawyers, and, and uh, to have a very, very good, strong, broad uh, general legal education, is what this uh, this institution has to remain uh, all about. Uh, I had a uh, a meeting recently, or listened to a presentation by a dean of a of a law school that I would regard as, if you looked at the U.S. uh, news, they would be, uh, I guess, a third-tier law school. And and he was uh, saying that for his uh, students, they're creating a a, a new real estate program where they're actually gonna get some on-the-job, very concrete training uh, in real estate uh, work and real estate documents and so forth. I think that's a very good strategy for that law school, Uh, but we would lose an awful lot if the Stanfords of the world started thinking in that direction. don't worry. No, I'm not. <laughs> not. the direction we're moving.
2: Um, although there is a sense, I will say, there is a sense in which a part of the education that we want to provide here, though, gives enough exposure to that so students have some sense on integrate yep. what you do in classes and, and so on into so they have some sense of what that's going to mean. But um, so, Becky, let me turn to you. Part I just kind of want to turn to you and go, so what do you think? Right. Because um, well, because the, and this is more from less from your experience as a, a justice and more from the work you've been doing at the Institute. And, and in particular, you know, the way in which all of this dynamic then plays out with the way law is practiced and then seen in courts. So it's from that perspective, I am curious, what do you think?
6: Well, let me begin by saying that I think that we as lawyers see this problem from a very limited perspective with the exception of Mark, who is a client and who expects value from legal services, I think what we look at is what kind of life do we want to lead? Uh, How do we want to train lawyers? What, What kinds of lawyers do we want out and about in the world? I think we're missing three significant components, one of which Jamie Ann already mentioned, although it came an hour into the conversation, which is that the role of lawyers is to facilitate a just system. Be it in transactional work, be it in litigation, the role of lawyers is to allow clients to comport their behavior with the rule of law, allow clients to get resolutions from courts and other tribunals we are indeed a service profession. We are not, remarkably enough, the center of the universe. (laughs) And I think we lose sight of that. I think we lose sight of what it is that we're supposed to be doing. And I can tell you that, this is a a point that Kate made, I can tell you as I have traveled around the country in my new role in this uh, institute for the advancement of the American legal system, The hallmark is not clients who have the leverage and the sophistication to negotiate the kinds of arrangements that they want for legal services and lawyers who are comfortable with that kind of arrangement and with the level of work that they're doing. Rather, I would suggest to you that by far the most common perception is the clients are furious, they're paying way too much for legal services, the lawyers, particularly the younger ones, but not just the younger ones, are incredibly unhappy with the work that they're doing, particularly, by the way, in litigation, but not just in litigation, and then, oh by the way, add in electronic discovery to that particular calculus and ask how they feel about sitting and reviewing documents for the first five years of their professional lives. I would suggest to you that we are in in our profession a state of real flux and if we don't figure out how to offer services that have value to clients, if we don't figure out how to develop a legal system that permits access, and it's not just low income people anymore who cannot get access, I'd be really interested to know what in this crowd or on this panel the amount of money in controversy has to be for a firm to take a case. My suspicion is it's somewhere in the quarter of a million and up range, maybe it's closer to a million, for there to be a real opportunity to get legal services. And then what do you do with all of the clients who can't afford that kind of tariff in order to get into court? or they do get into court and they start bleeding legal fees and then end up settling, not on the basis of the merits.
7: I hate to interrupt, it just occurred to me, when you think about the subprime crisis right now, how many of those people had a chance to ask a lawyer whether they should sign those documents? And yet our entire economy is reeling from the effect of a whole set of transactions where the bond derivative firms had legal counsel and the people whose, who are, whose decisions are taking down our housing values and our economy um, did not have a chance to ask a lawyer what they Well,
2: I, I want to interrupt there. I'm not sure, I mean, I don't completely disagree, but uh, we are a very unrepresentative group. Yeah. Of course, this group is chosen because we're not unrepresentative for what Stanford law graduates do. But when I when we published the letter that you all read in the alumni magazine it made its way onto the Wall Street Journal blog, and one of the Really vicious. <laughs> Consistent attacks was, you know, hey, there's a whole other legal profession out here that you're not paying any attention to of uh, graduates of second, third, fourth tier law firms who are out there practicing. They are serving. Now you might say, okay, so what the problem is is not that people can't get any legal services at all, it's that there's a major maldistribution of talent if we believe as as we do at Stanford, of course, that we actually have better students and give them a better education than they can get elsewhere. But but there is a slight difference. I mean, there is a profession out there that serves. Um, and serves well, and you know, I mean, I, I have family members who, you know, have, work in a very different segment of the legal profession than I ever have, and so. Um,
6: but Larry, you know, <laughs> even even if we sort of take ourselves down a notch and start talking about lawyers who work at sixty thousand dollars a year, and by the way, the Institute has had the same experience that Jamie Ann has had in the sense that we have to turn away applicants to come work for us and we don't pay very well but we have a purpose we have a commitment to sort of the doing better in the world but if we even look at that tier of lawyers who are just feeding their families even they are not satisfying client needs because of their billing rates and these are dissolution lawyers for example Um, Fifty percent of the state court cases around the nation on the civil side are divorce cases that are filed in any given year. Those people are more and more going pro se or pro per or whatever we're now, whatever term we're using for self-represented litigants. Not necessarily because they can't afford it, but because they feel like if they hand a lawsuit over to a lawyer, they're going to lose control over it, and the costs are going to spin beyond what they believe they can or should appropriately pay. So it isn't that there is a group of litigants who are meeting up with a group of lawyers whom they can afford, and life is good for both of them. It isn't that either, Larry. It is a much more pervasive problem about lawyers providing a service that is truly of value and also creating a system that can allow litigants or uh, business um, clients to resolve disputes, to get outcomes that actually satisfy their needs.
2: Mm -hmm. Let me put out a provocative statement that's could, in a sense, let all everybody off the hook, and, and then I'll, I want you to tell me why it isn't true, which is maybe the fault here is my graduates, right? Let us say maybe the fault is that you've got um, people coming out of law school expecting to be paid $160,000 a year and not wanting to do drudge work, which will, of course, provide them all the basic training that they're going to need in order to develop judgment later on. Um, and that's where all the pressure has coming from. Why isn't that, in fact, the right explanation? By the way, it would not be the law schools. I just wanna put that on the table because in fact, uh, one can cover the full debt one gets from law school at a considerably lower salary than, than what the firms are offering. There's actually a bigger gap now between starting salaries and debt burdens than was ever true
4: uh,
2: in the past. But is, is that the problem? And if not, why not?
4: Well, the debt burden is a part of it. I mean, the, the reason law students Law graduates put up with the document review is that they have to pay off a hundred thousand dollars or more in but, debt. But
2: you know, you go back, and and, I mean and,
4: and they went the training, and then they decided, as Jim said, what they really want to do. Mm-hmm. And, uh, two years or three years later, they say, okay, now I've got a little training, I've paid off the debt. Now, now I can make a choice.
2: Mm-hmm. But you know, as I say, you go back twenty years, thirty years, forty years. The starting salary would have been about the same as the average debt burden: ten thousand, ten thousand, forty thousand, forty thousand. Uh, now it's $160,000, 100000 so you could get paid considerably less and cover your debt, and then there's a whole array of alternative job options that nonetheless people but, aren't taking. But, but
4: Jamie Ann is right. Part of it is this generational change in terms of what what people think are important. Jim said he works harder than any associate in the firm. I think partners of our generation do work harder than the associates. Just so, some, there's something about <coughs> our DNA or our <laughs> our. our, our, our Upbringing, or our parents who lived through the Depression, or something, that inculcated that in us. And now we have law school graduates who are very smart, who prefer to actually—they they want to do something interesting. They're—they're they're willing to work hard, but they want to sit at home in their pajamas with their fish, so they can see their fishbowl on their laptop and listen to their iPod rather than coming to work to interact with their colleagues.
0: I want to—I want to pause. I definitely this is want to pause a different <laughs> theory here.
4: This is all a setup for Kate.
0: What? A, yeah. One, you know, important issue there is when associates see partners, even the most senior partners like you guys, spending so much Mm -hmm. of your lives and so much of your energy on work. Mm-hmm. They say to themselves, is that what I want to strive for? Absolutely. And I, I'm not sure that that was the case when you were in their shoes. And it, it's a, a vicious cycle um, when you guys are working that hard. If it's not a path that people really genuinely can see themselves on, especially since most of them won't become equity partners, you don't necessarily get the same brass ring or the chances of it are much smaller, mm-hmm. then you have the problem of attrition. Then there's less incent for, incentive for you guys to invest in mentor. So it just sort of feeds on itself. Right. So my theory is profit per partner becoming the organizing principle by which firms are judging themselves. You can, profit per partner, you can address in a number of different ways. Um, you can in, you can get more profits per partner by increasing rates, which isn't great for um, Cisco and other clients. You can increase- part-
5: I, I don't care, because I don't pay on a billable- You wouldn't do it, okay, for 99% for, for of,
0: of clients out there. You can increase it- just hire you. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Through hours build is the, is the second approach, um, which is per person, which is not great for attorneys and not great for retention. You can do it by increasing leverage, the number of, of associates per partner, um, which we've seen happen. Again, negative implications for clients and attorneys. You can cut costs. That hasn't happened. We've only seen salaries going up. So, I mean, I, I would think that a lot of this is driven by trying to increase p- profit per partner and having that really be how we're judging um, you,
4: you know, I think I, I think that's the, I, I think the profits per partner is a necessary element to compete. But I think it's driven by client demands and by people's innate sense of wanting to do a good job. Uh, we don't tell people how many hours to bill. I mean, we do have expectations. We have a completely adjustable salary. Anybody can elect any salary they want for any commitment to the firm. So, you know, we've taken that off the table. The Clients ask interesting questions. They're important questions. They're bet-the-company questions. They're interesting from a legal point of view. They're policy questions. People want to do a good job. They work hard. They work hard to do it. Most of our associates who burn out are internally driven, mm-hmm. and the profits per partner is just, you know, we have to have enough to keep the firm together to, to be able to offer the competitive advantage that each firm kind of tries to stake out for, for itself lawyers on the whole are paid far too much i mean right I mean, compared to other value added to society i sure. mean just so you know this 160000 dollar starting salary is nuts we all we all agree but it's you know it's the structure we have i think the one uh, response that law firms are likely to take that you didn't mention kate is having a lower associate to partner ratio i think you go to all partners because clients are are seeking essentially two categories of services from law firms very narrow expertise born of many years of experience, and the quick answer, don't bother to research it, just tell me what you think, and then the arms and legs, you know, review these 6,000 documents by tomorrow, and somebody else can provide that than a Stanford graduate of $160,000 a year. So you could just have a firm of all partners Mm -hmm. who have this expertise, and it would just work just fine for about 10 more years, (laughs) and then it would be extinct. Right. But you could maximize profits per partner then because you could have an infinitely high hourly rate. You could have a $3,000 an hourly rate hourly rate, and every client would pay it for the 10 minutes of advice
3: that you give them on the narrow question. That's exactly right. I've had a number of clients yeah. come to me and say, Jim, I'll pay whatever you want to pay for, for your time. Uh, but uh, I don't want to uh, see uh, untrained first, second, and third year associate time on my bills. Um, and, and I'm, I'm sure Mark's the same way. He didn't mind paying for Steve Shapiro's time, but if we loaded it up with uh, first or second year people who were uh, not giving uh, giving the same value, that would have been a different issue. If you loaded it up, yes. But what I did
5: is I had several people that I thought could do the job. We liked Steve a lot, but we didn't mm-hmm. want to let him just right. name a price. So we let there be a little bit of competition and got him to go back and scrub his numbers a little bit. and he came back with something that made us feel comfortable, and then it was his decision how to staff it and whether he wanted to use first years or second years or third years, and I didn't have a word to say on it. I was mm-hmm. happy to use whoever he in his judgment thought it made sense to have work on the case, and we got a great result.
3: I couldn't have been happier. Sure. The fact of the matter is he's, he's so efficient in what he does that uh, that he does spend a lot of so his Steve, time.
2: Steve Shapiro? Yeah. yeah. I worked with Steve a few times. He's Fairly demanding on the younger people. He's I very demanding say. on the younger people. You may not be billing it, but I gave up my life on several cases working with Steve. <laughs> <laughs> You get this call out of the blue. You know, I just had the following thought. Track that down. Then yeah. ten minutes later, here's another thought.
3: You know, Gordy's exactly cards. right about about about, uh, about lots of things. But one thing that that really struck home for me is this notion that uh, associates who burn out uh, tend to be largely self-driven. Uh, and uh, uh, many of the, the associates who are our best associates uh, who wind up leaving and, and, and saying things about how hard they 've been working uh, are people who are working much harder than, uh, than than we demand they work or even ask that they work they, they, they just they 're that kind of people they really want the the, the best work they, they 're driven internally that 's how they got where they are uh, and they, and then suddenly they realize that 's not consistent with the rest of their lives
6: well. You may be able to comment on these figures far better than I because I just pulled them up. But according to NALP data, in 2000, percent of associates with about five years of experience had already left their first firm. By 2005, that number had moved to 78%. Now, that doesn't bespeak just a bunch of people who are internally driven. That bespeaks a
0: much broader
2: Actually, even more interesting is um, we're also, I think, up to something in the 20 percentages who are moving after one year or two years. I
0: I want to agree with something you guys said in terms of the ecosystem of, of the legal world, as at least kind of we see it stepping back increasingly for the top of the pyramid, the highest risk type of needs, of course, there's a need for firms like yours. And, you know, when you're talking about that level of risk and value pricing, I think certainly clients are going to pay for what you provide. It's the rest of the pyramid. At the bottom of the pyramid, increasingly work is becoming commoditized. You know, we just ran a round table for the COOs of uh, the law departments of investment banks and they are turning, twisting themselves into pretzels, trying to think incredibly creatively about how to address that commoditized work. What used to be the idea of outsourcing is now the fact of outsourcing for standardized contracts, e-discovery and other things all over the world. Um, and clearly the pricing there is much more product pricing. But then there's this huge middle, which is work that I think traditionally at least the bigger firms did and what do you do with that? And that's where it's kind of not the bet the company, but the run the company type business and, you know, there's kind of a spectrum of hiring the in-house team and, you know, Ben Heineman and GE and others who have really built internal law firms and now most most big companies have those. And to augment that or to scale up and scale down, they're, they're um, looking at uh, other firms, even regional firms, going to firms in smaller cities that are less expensive or go- turning, I hope, to resources like Axiom, which allow for that integration and, and that scaling up and down, where you get sophisticated lawyers, but you get them integrated with the business. And it just means that the, uh, the type of work that will go to law firms at the level that you guys are at will get narrower, or there will be smaller firms. I mean, there will be a smaller number of firms, probably both.
3: There's no doubt that there's a lot of work uh, that cannot support the kind of rates we charge and the kind of uh, flat fees we charge or, or uh, billing arrangements, special billing arrangements that we charge. It's it doesn't make sense for us. It doesn't make sense for clients. And, and uh, making uh, sure that clients realize that and that they go to places like Axiom or to other law firms for some of those things is, is perfectly appropriate part of our business. I think we all have to do
7: that. Uh, I, was, uh, I have a number of thoughts swirling around, but one is that i talked about this panel and some of the questions uh, that had been suggested to us beforehand with my husband and a colleague of his who are in one of those boutique law firms that um, uh, Gordon was talking about earlier, uh, where they said that they have the protection of the rates charged by um, other broader scale Mm -hmm. firms of um, charging consistently 15% under what's charged by others and in an area that big law firms no longer want. Many firms are jettisoning environmental lawyers Um, and hiring them from specialty places like um, their firm and and they have a different model. Their partner salaries, their partner draws are lower than at firms like this, but they have a firm that is steady at a growth rate and a satisfaction level and with a great deal of flexibility that is a model that is almost invisible to law students. Um, when I've, I know that you, the next session is with the students here who've uh, created Building a Better Legal Profession, and I think um, when there's that kind of energy for what people are doing during summers during law school, for creating an organization like that here at Stanford, for asking the kinds of questions they are, it, it just doesn't seem fair to blame the juniors even when they have a great deal of market power. They're looking at others. They're looking at what's weighed and measured by... Um, the people who are held up to them as leaders in the profession. Um, So a lot of it lies in who we portray as the leaders and for what. If we portray them as leaders for things that are the signals we wanna send to the next generation, we may get different behaviors. If we show them, as I suggested, building a better legal profession do, not just the question as among firms paying top dollar, this is Gordon's son, as among firms paying top dollar who has figured out how to do more public interest and have a more diverse um, set of professionals, you're looking at the head of a pen. You are looking at a very small slice of our legal profession. And if if you ask the question differently and lead with satisfaction or balance or a combination of service and professional reward and intellectual interest and a list, then you might get different answers or at least you'd find a way to rearray things so that you'd mix in. For some people the answer is axiom and for some it's Beverage and Diamond and for some it's Fenwick and West and some people are um, gonna make choices that are now not respected choices within the law school. State and local government um, is a place that for many people has uh, some of that mix. It's been forgotten recently for some reasons that um, I, can understand but um, they shouldn't be off the plate permanently as we think about where there are opportunities for lawyer service reward training um, and contribution
6: mm-hmm. i met larry just to respond to your challenge for us to assert why it isn't the fault of Stanford grads, and, and I think like all the rest of the panelists, I would suggest that clearly it's not. Well, not
2: just Stanford, by the way. <laughs>
6: well, <laughs> I, I, I love met, Stanford oh, grads. Sit, just. <laughs> I met with a young woman probably a month ago who is clerking for the Colorado Supreme Court right now, Who is who was number one in her class at Villanova, asked her what she was intending to do next, and she was talking about the fact that her heart is in Advocacy for children, and that what she really wanted to do was to land in guardian ad litem work or something that would allow her to really help kids. And she said it was so hard to stay true to that because all the way through law school, and I even see some heads nodding around the auditorium, all the way through law school, she had been getting pressure not only from her peers but from those of us who are further along in the profession to think about something else, to go do something else first and then come back to public interest work at some point in time or to understand that she would be limiting herself if she made those choices or to understand what she would be giving up if she made those choices. I think we need to re-examine the messages that we're giving. You know, for the best and the brightest to want to do that, we should be applauding it, because there is such a huge need, rather than sort of trying to alley her over into something that feels a little bit more prestigious or more financially rewarding. So I think it's us. I think that we have to re-examine, as you say, Larry, how we define prestige.
2: And here's one interesting, I mean, interesting observation. Because at the end of the day, I also think it's sort of a failure of leadership from across the top of the profession. But but there's a peculiar aspect to it, which is the following. Um, So you know, Axiom is a kind of alternative. Actually, Kate mentions the sort of building of the um, in-house into a full firm as, as as an alternative. Stanford, for instance, in its in its inter- now I mean the university as an operation has gone the opposite side on its in-house operation and actually did something really interesting which one would think would be great for firms, which is we actually outsource a huge amount and keep a very small operation, but outsource by having young associates with firms come and essentially spend full time with this one client, which then takes up the training issue. They get great training. And experience and, and then and then go back to the firm after a few years and can serve as a full. Fo- so what's interesting to me is, but all these alternatives are so marginal, right? And, and so the weird <laughs> thing is, here's this economic competition that's driven, and yet nobody's experimenting, or, you know, none of the big firms have broken from the traditional model, none of the mid-sized firms also, except when forced by clients. will do it as little as they have to to satisfy a certain set of clients. So why isn't there, like in any normal market, a kind of flowering of alternatives as people would try them out and to see whether you could then appeal to a different set of students, offer a different work-life balance. There's, you know, as we, we didn't talk about the issue of, say, gender and attrition, a lot of women leaving. Well, I, there, there are a million different ways to harness that talent, one would think, and, and yet nobody will do it. And so That's where you're wrong, Larry. Yeah, I think everybody's
3: yeah. trying to do it. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Uh, and trying, but trying pretty much still within, sticking well, with the traditional you know, billable hours model. Uh,
3: no, not necessarily. We, we do a lot of our work that's not on the billable hours model. We do a lot of uh, secondment and placement of, of, of lawyers. uh, uh, at clients to try to get them that kind of experience. Uh, We do a a lot of, uh, one of the things that we're trying to offer students more and more is the ability to uh, spend part of their associate time in different countries uh, to go around the world. That's something they find very attractive both as a lifestyle issue and just as an experience issue. One of the things I always found frustrating as a law professor uh, was students coming to me and saying they're torn between uh, (coughs) doing public interest work and and paying off their loans. This is, of course, back in the days before law schools made it easier to do public interest work and pay off your loans. Uh, But people were torn between those. And there are always gonna be some of the people, and and frankly, I think they are often the best and the brightest who decide to go off and do public interest uh, work on a full-time basis. Uh, But uh, law firms uh, need to provide and law students need to demand. Uh, that law firms give them the opportunity to do substantial components of public interest uh, work while they're at the law firms. We have, were one of the first law firms to, uh, to hire, a, uh, we, we hired a full-time, uh, someone who was a full-time law professor who, who ran a clinical program in, uh, primarily in the, in the criminal area, but, but uh, substantial amounts of civil uh, work as well uh, to become our coordinator of pro bono legal services around the world. And we do a lot of that. We worked, uh, uh, before you had the good sense to come to Stanford, we worked uh, with, with Larry Marshall. Uh, we worked with a variety of people uh, on that. And I, I uh, deliberately made a statement when I became chairman of, of saying I'm going to be chairman of the firm. I'm also going to be uh, in charge of the pro bono committee because I want to make sure people know that that's a value. Uh, but law firms, by and large, have have failed to... Uh, to offer as much of this as, as they should and as good an opportunity. It's a great training opportunity uh, for, for, for associates, and it's also just part of our responsibility to the profession and the society. Dr.
7: That This is an area in which there has been a very fascinating change. Um, I was talking to the pro bono counsel for a, another Chicago-based firm the other day about the sea change in this area. And um, this is a case where the American lawyer factor plays in again in the land of you get what you measure, when American Lawyer um, decided, with the encouragement of a number of advocates for this perspective, that the American Lawyer A-List would include pro bono work, narrowly defined and tightly watched, although these fudging and reporting um, Extreme fudging. whenever these things happen. Uh, the balance really shifted, and literally I just yesterday said, I wonder how many of these firms I can allow to meet with me to beg us to give them substantial amounts of work. Uh, Because the kind of work we do is extremely attractive to firms who wanna do high quality (coughs) impact work and balance that with whatever quotient of direct services they wanna do. Um, And it's not just local. International firms, national firms, and California firms are asking me to help fill the time of their summer people quote, we have 150 um, law students around the country, anything you can give them, including (laughs) projects that will take them all summer would be extremely attractive. (laughs) I've been invited to do field trips so that people can see what difference our work actually makes and take people out in a bus to pick the housing projects in the East Bay that we wanna show people um, about how affordable housing and community development and um, uh, zoning issues come together to actually make places for people to live. And there's a conversation about um, the relationship between charitable support and even the phrase pay to play and giving people at law firms the opportunity to do some of the most interesting public interest work. And once again, there's a prestige factor. The easiest cases to place are appellate briefs, amicus briefs, um, and very sexy impact litigation, Um, but also work for transactional lawyers in order to give them a combination of training and professional satisfaction. So I I guess uh, one thing this could stand for is just, it's a great example that if you put the right things up front, measure them, have leadership about them, then you staff them. We went from pro bono coordinators to pro bono counsel who are partners within the firms or partners recruited from other firms to handle these responsibilities or faculty recruited to run these functions within law firms. Um, You get a different dynamic. Um, Literally, I have to think now about the scale of what we do and what we do in-house versus what we ship Mm out-house because three years ago, we were doing very little, except for one mega case in California, we were doing very little with pro bono firms. And I now have um, nine nine prestige law firm names, but the line behind them is even longer, (laughs) currently working with us on matters from... um, D.C.-based tax counsel and tax legislative lobbying to antitrust. Um, I'm told that I found the only antitrust pro bono case in a decade um, (laughs) that Sherman and Sterling agreed to do. Um, The list goes on and on. But it does speak to both law students talking about it, partners knowing what it means to them as they say, what what are my professional satisfactions? And American lawyers saying, we're going to put it on the list, so what else should be on the list?
5: You know, Larry, it, you asked the question, why, why aren't the law firms doing more to, to, to change this model, given these issues, and I, from the client's Or shouldn't pers- there
2: be more of a diversity of models?
5: Well, from, from the client's perspective, I think one of the reasons that doesn't change is because the economics drive things to the point they are. It's still highly profitable to run a large law firm this way. That's what the profit per partner are showing. When, uh, Becca has the example, 78% uh, moving around, people leaving after first and second year. I mean, Gordy and and Jim aren't hiring people at 160,000 a year because they think they're developing the next generation of equity partners. What percentage of the people who come in as a first year are still going to be there after three years, five years, seven years, let alone get, get asked to be partner? From the client's perspective, there's still a lot of reason to want the imprimatur. There's a lot of stickiness there that's tied to brand identification, that's tied to relationships. There are some firms that have gotten very adept at building relationships between the senior partners and the CEOs of the company. So the general counsel are disempowered and couldn't fire the law firm if they wanted to. That that (laughs) happens. Uh, There are, uh, uh, in addition, there there are times when uh, the branding is very, very important. If I'm opining on something that's important internally, uh, there's value in me in being able to say that Mayor Brown said this, or Fenwick and West said this, or Gordy said this, as opposed to saying that, you know, the temporary person that I have from Axiom said it. So for that reason, there's not, not that, not that the work is necessarily differentiable. I'm making a point about branding, not mm-hmm. about quality. But that branding ends up attracting a franchise value that people will pay for, even though there's not a substantive value for it. And, and that perpetuates uh, the model and facilitates continuing to hire people in that model because it works from a profitability standpoint. And I think that's one reason that you don't see more in the way of experimentation. Right, and let me, okay, d- I just d- want d- to. Oh, oh, you know, a
7: quick d- footnote, <laughs> you notice that um, you introduced me as having worked at Waugachal and Manchis and Kate as having worked at Cravat. So we can't deny that there's value in that brand recognition uh, all the way around. Uh, right. Just as Mark
2: yeah. So we've got some time for questions or comments or reactions from the audience. So uh, um, one question I didn't see the didn't seem to be
9: answered directly was that um, why is it that the firms can't bill out their junior associates? at effectively a market rate, say $100 an hour, rather than double or triple that. Even at $100 an hour, if they're doing 2,000 hours, that's $200,000, which is 125% of the salary. Now, I know the overhead's probably more than that 25%, but you're at least getting close to break even. And it seems that in most businesses, you know, when you deliver services to clients or to customers that are appropriately priced, over the long term, those businesses are more successful and more profitable. So even... It it would give more trading to associates, clients would feel better about it. And even though in the short term, profits per partner would, would be reduced, in most businesses, over the long term, the customers or clients gravitate toward those businesses that are giving price appropriate services. And if a big law firm, it seems to me, went out and made a big public announcement that they are going to bill their junior associates at an appropriate rate, that law firm would gain both respect and business from many
1: clients.
4: We do. I mean, the the short answer is we haven't raised uh, first-year associate rates in three years. Uh, So we we didn't, in response to our clients, you know, admonitions not to raise the rates, we didn't do it, and we made it clear to the clients. Uh, But you're still, there's still a um, challenge because you're spending a lot of money to train people, paying them a lot of money if they're only going to stay two or three years. I mean, the real frustration is, They don't stay seven or eight years or nine years or hopefully thirty years. uh, So that uh, there's still a big economic disconnect, uh, and you're still paying a salary that's just you know exacerbates the the problem. But we certainly do that. I mean, there's no lack of experimentation. We've done all the obvious things, uh, but uh, you know we still haven't solved the whole you know set of cross currents. They're driven by client demands, generational changes. Uh, You know one of the topics we really only alluded to here, but I, the, the one that worries me the most is a manager, is retention of women. Uh, and, uh, you know, that that's one that's, uh, you know, the, I think the big issue.
3: Yeah. I agree with that.
8: I'm Rosanna Doro, and I graduated in 95, and I just want to say that there's room in the market for everything and there is a lot more experimentation than you're probably aware of. And since I've developed my practice in Silicon Valley, I had the uh, advantage of the bastion of entrepreneurism around me and four and a half years ago, more than four and a half years ago now, after six years at Wilson Sansini and um, several years as general counsel of pre-IPO companies, I started my own little practice and it's really, a trend now that's very decentralized of people that do small firms and solo practices and don't have and reduce overhead by mostly working at home, and so it's working for a lot of companies. And I'm sure Cisco's using some of us actually. <laughs> but um, I just want to say there is experimentation out there, and the technology today allows it to happen. To the uh, voice of. Uh, uh, Gordy Davidson, the brain, or no, Mark, you mentioned the branding, and that is probably one of our biggest problems for those of us who are doing this. We can develop great teams in a very decent, uh, decentralized way, especially the female lawyers. We have groups of us that are connected just by email and help each other out in ways that are very substantial. Um, ladies who lunch is <laughs> a big network of women lawyers. Now. Anyway, and I have a colleague here who is some, also has her own little practice that she's done the same way and has done it longer than I, but there is experimentation, and there's room for all of this because we do some, something similar to Axiom, and we do think some, something similar to a traditional law firm, but because of technology and entrepreneurism, we're able to do, do a little bit more of, of a combination, and it is something different. It's just decentralized. You don't hear about it.
2: Accent would probably want to hook in with you. I, I think
5: decentralization and te- technology really will be drivers in creating different models of providing legal services. And I uh, I found very interesting Gordy's comment about retention of women. My department in the U.S. at least is about fifty-fifty male-female in terms of uh, the lawyers in the group. And uh, the vast majority of the women in my group have had babies since they came to Cisco. Several have had two, and I've a couple have had three since they've been at Cisco, and we've worked very, very hard to create flexibility in the arrangements of when people are working, how they are working, from where they're working, what modalities. And from my standpoint, my attrition among women is, is very, very low, and it's the men who have the m- greater mobility that I have to put greater efforts into retention, actually.
4: You, you know what I think the difference there is? I mean, you, you get a lot of comments. I, I um, sit down with every uh, associate in our corporate group who leaves the firm just to understand what the reason is. And in, in particular, I worry about the women and minorities who leave. And, and um, one of the things I've learned, uh, we have a completely flexible part-time program, and anybody can elect any part-time that they want, and we respect it internally. So if somebody says, I'm a 60% lawyer, and you know, I work Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, or I work you know, from 10 until 4, and I have to drop my kids off and pick them up, we respect that the difference is our clients don't respect that. They, they, they don't. They're not aware of it. I mean, they're not mean spirited, but they just they, they will they will call they will call an associate who we think leaves at four at quarter of four, saying, "I need a term sheet out and I need it tonight," and that creates enormous stress. And uh, the associates, you know, I got to put my kid up. What do I say? Do I say that to the client? Do I, you know, do I leave my kid on the street corner? And we, I, and I always say, well just you know have a better communication with your client. Explain to them your schedule. Uh, often it's a working mother who would understand the, the, exactly the issue and say, "Hey hey listen, do you really need this tonight or would you know 8 a.m. tomorrow do because at nine o'clock when I put my kid down, I can actually do this term sheet. Would that work?" But somehow our associates are afraid to say that to the client. So we don't have the same transparency or degree of communication that you do internally. I mean, so, so I, I suspect that, you all understand each other's part it's schedule. It's nine to eleven at night that I get the emails. That's for right. women in my department. <laughs> no, <that's> exactly
3: right, exactly. <laughs> we face exactly the same issue. And somehow we
4: have to just make that transparent from across the client.
3: No. We face the same issues. We we have a lot of flexibility with with people's work schedule. Uh, there's a a meeting in a in a couple of weeks or next week sometime in uh, in Arizona where uh, general counsels of, of major clients are calling, inviting, uh, so to speak. Uh, law firm chairman to come in and talk about diversity issues, and uh, clearly one of the things that we have to realize is that diversity is something uh, we have to partner uh, with clients on, and they have to understand uh, that if they want us to have uh, diverse teams, they, they've got to support our use of those teams, and, and, and particularly for, uh, for, for women, but for a growing number of men as well, uh, there are work, uh, lifestyle differences that have to be accommodated.
10: I'm Mike Martin. I'm a 2006 law school grad. And I, I just think it's interesting because I heard from everybody, you know, made a slightly, made this point in a slightly different way, but it seems like it's basic economics what's really going on, which is that there's a fixed supply of talent, both at the associate level and the partner level, and a steadily, actually explosively increasing demand for legal services, and so the increasing number of pro se applicants is one way that that's playing out and there not being enough legal services for the people who took out subprime mortgages, but then all the way up to the big law firms where there has to be an increasing use of leverage to attract the talented partners, you know, at the associate level. And so, you know, one idea for this is, you know, we're all seeing all the negative consequences of this would be to just deregulate the legal profession a little bit instead of having, you know, a fixed number of law schools and these really stringent aba requirements, which many of which don 't make much sense, right just let let the market meet the needs better, and By the way, we actually might still in the United States make just as much money as we are right now because of globalization we We have a sort of competitive advantage in our legal system, so I just I was curious to hear if anybody has any thoughts on on the deregulation as a possible solution to a lot of these problems
6: i I can offer an insight that isn't a Stanford Law School insight. Uh, The University of Denver, where our institute is located, uh, has for a long time had a night school program as well as a day program. And the graduates of the night school tend to have significant problems finding jobs. Um, As they're tracked years after they graduate, a significant proportion of them don't stay in the practice of law. They use their legal degree for other things. So I'm not sure that creating more lawyers is the answer to this unless we create a different um, species, status of lawyer, more akin to a paralegal or a physician's assistant in the medical profession, people who can do a lot but just not the top level things and who require less training and who are paid commensurately less both by their employer and by the client, uh, that may be a model that has credence. The courts have not endorsed that because The courts won't allow paralegals to enter an appearance in court, even for very simple things. There are some jurisdictions around the country that are moving in that direction, name changes or sort of titular kinds of proceedings. The courts are experimenting with allowing non-lawyers to represent someone or with, bifurcating services so that somebody, a lawyer can do the services behind the scenes and yet the client can still appear on his or her own behalf in court. I think there is some experimentation going on in those arenas, but I'm not sure, at least from my perspective, that I would support the notion that more lawyers is the answer.
2: Well, just, just very quickly, there was a study in the Wall, Street, the Wall Street Journal published a study, I mean, they reported on a study that had been done on this. So, in fact, there's been an explosive growth of law schools at the low end of the market, and there's actually a lot of lawyers at that end uh, unable to find jobs. The, over the last 25 years, the overall legal market has grown about 25%. And as I say, there's been then this large growth, because there's no regulation on the number of law schools, not really. I mean, accreditation is, in theory, as is the bar exam in theory, but in fact, they don't really function very effectively outside California, at least, um, as as a constraint on growth. The, The high end of the legal market has grown by about 75%. And there is an issue, which is the top law schools have not grown concomitantly. Of course, you can't sort of just make more law schools top law schools and expand it that way. And, and in fact, there's strong pressures on us not to grow significantly. I mean, I tossed out at last year's Board of Visitors and with my faculty earlier this year the idea of modestly expanding our class. And, you know, and I think for good reasons people said, let's not do that. It's one of the great things about this school, one of the things that makes it such a good experience is the smallness. So across the top of the law schools, there has not been a growth, and that is a lot of the driving factor probably behind salary increases. But again, I think not the more complicated cultural and lifestyle and, and work balance and diversity and attrition issues that are just, you know, there are more issues tied up in those, I think.
0: I'd like to take your question at just the simplest level, though, which is the need for innovation. And, you know, Axiom's been in place for about seven years. There's more chatter than there ever has been about the need for change and innovation in the legal profession. And I think that that has to go beyond tweaking existing models, because healthy structures lead to healthy behaviors. There's only so much change you can do in models that depend on the billable hour. Um, In terms of accommodating... You know, client needs, attorney needs. And so innovation is necessary. We're backed by Benchmark Capital and J.P. Morgan Partners, having kind of the innovative engine of the country involved in the project and potentially looking at just the structure of firms. We're a C-Corp. We're not an LLC. We don't practice law. Our attorneys do under the umbrella of our clients. It allows for change in innovation, and I think we have to think about it at a structural level.
11: I find it interesting that uh, there's not been a discussion of or a representative from the largest law firm in the United States, uh, that has a $43 billion budget, that practices in every single area of law that we deal with, uh, that has some of the highest job satisfaction ratings uh, in the nation, and it offers a tremendous training and experience for lawyers in their first, second, third, and fourth years. That's the United States Department of Justice. Having to work in the United States Department of Justice early on and currently in my career. Uh, It it answers an interesting question that I'm hearing and I've heard for years, that one first to third year lawyers don't get the experience. They get these big salaries, but don't get the experience. I'd like to throw out a suggestion that's being kicked around for college graduates or even people before they go to college, which is the notion of a, call it a mandatory or quasi-mandatory public service component to their life. It's not a draft anymore where you have to go to the military, it's going to do some type of public service for a year or two in America. Do you think we should have some type of public service component for law school graduates that you would run through the state bar as actually a mandatory part uh, in order to get your legal license or you have some type of public-private partnership where firms like Mayor Brown or, or Fenwick would go ahead and help fund lawyers actually getting the experience in their chosen fields but benefiting the public.
3: You know, our our firm, and, and particularly the appellate practice that I've been part of, uh, is populated largely by people who uh, have government service in their in their background. A lot of our people were uh, graduates of the Department of Justice and the SGS office, and so forth. Um, I I certainly applaud people who do that. I'm not sure there's a need to to make something like that mandatory. I I think that. Uh, From what I've seen, the the best government jobs, including the Department of Justice jobs, uh, like uh, the best public interest jobs, tend to have a fairly long line of people uh, interested in doing them. Um, uh, I think maybe we don't do as good a job as some uh, professions might do about making it clear uh, how much we value people with that experience. We have more uh, assistant U.S. attorneys at Mayor Brown than any other firm in the country. Uh, and they clearly have extraordinarily successful career paths. Uh, and, and perhaps we ought to be spending more time uh, letting the world know that.
2: Okay, okay. although, Christina, if you're going to hand the mic, you we stand in the one place, then all the
12: questions are going to come from the same people. So you've got to move around a little. Go ahead, John. Can I just observe? I, um, like one of the panelists, um, I've been counting the time. It's almost two hours. I'm struck that there hasn't been a single reference to any other business model other than the practice of law in this discussion, that uh, I, I would expect that a lot of the pressures that are really, I think the pressures all exist at the high end of the market. I mean, Jim and, and Gordy and Mark all operate at the very high end of the market. If you looked at other other services, if that's the right term, or other providers to major, um, institutions, major businesses. You looked at investment banking, you looked at other parts of the finance industry, you looked at any other service. Um, I, th- I think you've got um, historical, and I, I understand that the professional responsibility and other factors come in here, but I think you've got a historical model based on billing by the hour, on partners expecting to get more or less equal share, even though that has changed in recent years. You know, in hedge funds, partners don't get equal shares. In private equity funds, partners do, but there are only a handful of partners. If you look at at Goldman Sachs, partners don't make equal shares. And I I think you've got a historical model that um, if you really want to think creatively about it, you ought to think about other businesses and how they, what value they provide and how the, pricing works off of that, and in turn, how that works in terms of, of staffing. And final comment, in our business, and I think in many businesses, we don't make money on the employees that we hire for the first few years. They serve a purpose. They get trained. They may rise to roles where they where they do generate profit, but they, you know, a model that says I'm going to get more and more people at the lower levels because I can make a certain margin on those people, I, I think is... I think you're stuck in a in a, in a, uh, a model that's existed for a, a long, long time.
3: I agree with you, John. And uh, um, as, as I mentioned to, to a small group outside before, it's interesting to real to, to look at the history of the uh, of hourly billing. That's not been the way the legal profession uh, charged out historically. Uh, for many years, uh, law firms did things that were equivalent to value billing. They basically sent a bill out saying. Uh, for, uh, for, for services for service rendered rent. and it was based upon what the value would be. Um, it was actually clients and largely insurance clients uh, that forced uh, law firms into the hourly rate system and I think it's a system whose, uh, whose time has, has come and gone. Uh, and more and more of our clients are saying uh, we want you to first of all participate in, in our need for predictability. Uh, we want law firms to have every incentive to, uh, to be as efficient as possible. Uh, but we realize you have to uh, make uh, make your, your, your living as well and make your profits, and we want to have a, a system that works better. And I think uh, different kinds of billing models, different kinds of, of economic models uh, overall are, are, are going to be the things we see in the next few years. To that is you
4: not very much, I might
11: add.
4: <laughs> I don't think that's a good assumption.
7: <laughs>
4: They're harder on the investment banks than they are on us. The the um, uh, uh, we welcome, you know, we, we've had a very successful, for I think, mutually successful fixed fee arrangement with Cisco for over five years. I try to convince other clients to do the same thing, and they don't. They're, they're afraid to. Someone's
2: got
7: to In part, I turned mine
4: off. They don't have the predictability of, of deal flow uh, that Cisco does. And also there's a dynamic that Mark and I have discussed several times. It's hard for Mark to explain to his boss, who, by the way, is the vice president of operations, who believes in Moore's law and the costs go down every year and somehow the legal costs per hour aren't going down. But it's it's easier for a general counsel to say, hey, I got a 15 percent discount from my law firm than for Mark to say, hey, I got a fixed fee. And because you can't tell whether it's fixed, you know, how it compares to. So it's just I think part of it is, Clients and lawyers are a little bit lazy about working on other models. I mean, it's easier for us to keep track of hours. It's easier for us to compensate associates because hours, you know, is is an objective measure. Otherwise, we'd actually have to do performance evaluations and, and, you know, measure were they efficient and were they, you know, are they, you know. And and by the way, they don't want to be compared uh, on on a subjective basis. They want a predictable income too. So they want to know if they work another hour, how many more dollars they get. So it, it's all tied up in <laughs> the, the struggle of measuring how effective the law firms are and measuring how effective the associates are.
3: I'm glad you mentioned the folly of the percentage discount. It's uh, it's really quite bizarre.
4: Yeah, I don't, I don't understand the the attraction
5: either, except from the standpoint that it's easy to measure, which is there may be some general counsel who like to be able to say, well, I, they would have charged me this, but I got a discount, and so I saved this much money, but don't think at all about how the work gets done.
2: So I think we've got time for one last one last question, if anybody, or comment, if anybody wants to see this. Yeah,
13: down here. So I just wanted to get back to the issue of training. Thank you. Um, and this quandary that seems to, to be the case of what do you do when you're a fairly junior attorney? How do you get your experience? I am a grad of this law school, um, and I've been out in practice for less than five years, and I think we've seen solutions here. I, I think that the clients want the partners and the senior associates who are very experienced, and we've seen a market here for people, you know, the, the Axiom model. Those are people who are experienced. Um, I've heard a couple of solutions here to that problem of training. It seems to me that the places where the junior attorneys can get can get training are on potentially on the smaller matters, where there isn't enough money at issue for the more senior higher billers to take those matters on. And it's and it's a question I think in the practice of law of getting your reps in. And so there's that. There are also the types of activities that run the company as opposed to the bet the company activities. And that's another place to get your reps in. Um, The two solutions I've heard so far for junior attorneys are going into government and also um, potentially doing uh, pro bono and also the example of people going to firms and then being seconded to companies. That I think is a model that works for corporate and transactional, but not for litigation. What are the other possibilities? I would also say that the more fertile population to talk to is the people who are the junior level associates, not the law students. I think most of the junior level associates at firms in private practice are really interested in where do you get your experience and probably more willing to trade off on income to get the experience.
4: Pro bono is one. Uh, you know, we have we give full billable hour credit, unlimited for pro bono. So, that, you know, we, we use that as training. Frankly, uh, because Mark is indifferent to the hourly rate we charge, we put a lot of our first and second years on the fixed fee stuff because you know we, we just absorb it. But we give them training. We don't have an edict, edict from Mark that we can't use them as we as we do with other clients.
3: I think that's exactly right. I think. Uh, uh, pro bono is very important for litigation training. I, I think you can spend a lot of time as a young associate doing document review and e-discovery stuff and not, never really have a sense that uh, you have your hands around uh, the entire litigation process. Pro bono helps a lot going into government service certainly as a way uh, to, to get that kind of experience a lot earlier in uh, in, in a career. Uh, we've found that it's been harder to do uh, that kind of experiential uh, training in, in the Corporate and transactional areas than it is, uh, although we're starting to do more and more pro bono in in housing and other kinds of, uh, of transactional work that that helps a lot by and large though the uh, the most important training in, in most of our firms is going to be on the job training and it 's going to be doing things like Gordy was talking about, uh, putting people uh, to work on transactions, even knowing in some situations you 're not going to be able to charge uh, at least not charge separately for, for, for their work. Uh, But they they need to get that experience as quickly as possible.
6: And I guess I would just add the observation that I think all of us are saying, that it isn't just your responsibility to do it, that the people with whom you're working and for whom you are working have a responsibility to try to offer you those opportunities as well. And I I think that's what you're hearing uh, consistently across this panel, although I absolutely agree that government service is a place where you should be looking, not just at the the federal level, but at the state level and the local level, uh, you know, the district attorney's offices or the public defender's offices or the places where you can go and get experience that then can translate depending on what you want to do
7: ultimately. Although often the translation runs the other way. You can't assume that those people want, to, want the beginners um, if they're good places with good reputations. Mm-hmm. I've had a lot of San Francisco <coughs> partners tell me that they're tired of training people in their law firms to go to the city attorney's office or the district <laughs> attorney's and U.S. attorney's offices right. because they have leverage um, about the combination of things that right. they offer. Just to, to go back to the question about uh, broad public service, um, I think there's a lot in that that's positive about national public service, not just uh, lawyer public service. And there is, as Rebecca said, a huge justice gap. Um, There may be a model in there that would work, but my caveats would be that it is not a good solution for the lowest income people with legal needs across a range from complex to simple to ask them to do it all unless there's adequate um, seniority retention, um, partner supervision or other kinds of supervision built into those organizations that makes it really effective. Otherwise, right now legal services has a problem of churning um, that nobody would—that—that that is a problem for these private firms. When you do have people who develop relationships or expertise, um, nobody wants their client to have to uh, redo and restart over and over again, unless it's part of an intentional plan and a structure. And no client likes it, whether it's Cisco or um, you know low-income people in the Central Valley. So you'd have to build in structures that made sure that it was um, quality legal services for them as well.
2: So, um, with that, first I'd like to thank the audience for coming and sitting patiently, and especially, please, thank, let's thank the uh, members of the <laughs> panel who are just great. Thank you all for coming.
7: Thank you.
0: The preceding program is copyrighted by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu.